Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the host of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a great conversation on left ventricular systolic dysfunction and septic shock. Today, as our guests, we are fortunate to have uh, the authors of this publication, uh, Drs. Dugar and Dugo. Um, So I'll ask Dr. Dugar to introduce himself first. Thank you so much, Dr. Pepper, and thank you, Chess, for providing us with an opportunity to talk about our research study. So my name is Siddharth Dugar. I went to medical college in India, completed my residency at St. Agnes Hospital in Baltimore, and later did my training in critical care medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Currently, I am an uh, assistant professor at Lerner College of Medicine and director of point of care ultrasound. Um, I I have a vested interest in understanding the complex hemodynamics, particularly uh, directed towards the left ventricle in sepsis and septic shock. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. Um, And Dr. Dugal? Yeah, hi. um, um, Abhijit Dugal, sir. I am the Director for Critical Care Research at Cleveland Clinic, uh, and I'm also the Vice Chair for the Department of Critical Care. Um, my um, interest has been to really look at the complexities of, of critical illness and, and really look at how we can uh, define, uh, like, hitherto, uh, like, things that we have not been really focused on, including point of care uh, testing and how we can look at it in a, in a more complex way. So, so happy to be here and, and, and looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Uh, today we'll be discussing your article that is published in CHEST. It's entitled, Is Left Ventricular Systolic Dysfunction Associated with Increased Mortality Among Patients with Sepsis and Septic Shock? Um, so we'll ask uh, Dr. Dugar um, to kick us off. Uh, why did you perform the study? Well, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to elaborate on the reason why we performed this study. Uh, so this study has been in the making for almost six years. Um, and the reason is that we do take care of a lot of patients with sepsis and septic shock. And at our institution, we do perform a significant number of our patients do undergo comprehensive cardiac assessment, including echocardiogram and hemodynamic monitoring. And we noticed uh, when patient had hypodynamic or hyperdynamic cardiac function, it uh, added a little bit more complexity to our management decisions, including resuscitation, uh, goal of resuscitation, choices of vasopressors, and doses of vasopressors. We also observed that at both extreme of cardiac function, uh, there was an association of higher mortality in those groups. However, when we looked at the literature, uh, we saw that LV systolic dysfunction does not affect outcome in sepsis and septic shock, which was a little bit contradictory to what our bedside uh, experience has been. 
And from there, we thought that uh, given the significant number of patients that we have with septic and septic shock, we may be able to add to the literature of what truly happens when you have impaired or hyperdynamic cardiac function in sepsis and septic shock. So, Dr. Dugar, why do you think um, there was no association in previous literature? Um, you had mentioned in the paper that it may be because uh, uh, there may be a nonlinear association. Uh, what was crossing your mind as to further investigate it? Uh, that's an excellent question. So, you know, it, it all comes back to us being a clinician at bedside. And when you notice something at bedside and you're like, why is the studies not showing it? You really start questioning, did the study approach the question in the right manner? And what we realized is uh, there was an inherent bias uh, when it came to what constitutes abnormal cardiac function in sepsis and septic shock. And that started from the seminal paper by Parker et al., where they looked at only reduced cardiac function as a sign of impaired cardiac uh, contractility uh, that should be what we should be studying uh, in terms of uh, what affects outcome in sepsis and septic shock. The, the problem with that is that we are only looking at one patient population and assuming the other patient population is considered normal. We wanted to challenge that theory. And that's part of the reason we did this study is we assumed uh, before the start of the study that we will see a U-shaped curve. Hence, our entire research methodology was not to assume what is normal and abnormal in this group of patients, but rather use small uh, quantiles of patient based on their LV ejection fraction and just look at it in entirety without assuming this is going to be the normal value, this is going to be the abnormal value. Yeah, I think that's really impressive. The fact that you know previous papers have uh, kind of dichotomized uh, LV function, and I really applaud the two of you for or your team uh, for deciding. You know, maybe it's a, a nonlinear relationship. So let's investigate this further and see if this matches up with our clinical um, understanding. So, Dr. Dougal, um, maybe you could tell us what your study aims were. Absolutely. So I think uh, what Dr. Dugar just talked about in terms of. Uh, like our um, hypothesis starting off the study was really to see like how does uh, looking at ejection fraction in a linear way uh, uh, like, uh, tell us more about, about the outcomes for these patients. So one of the first aims that we had was to really look at the complex interrelationship between left ventricular ejection fraction and outcomes in patients with sepsis and septic shock. Now, I'll add to what Dr. Dugar already mentioned that, you know, the dichotomization of, of uh, ejection fraction, especially in previous studies, perhaps comes from, um, you know, a lot of reliance of, of this data from the outpatient setting where perhaps like reduced ejection fractions um, become a much more uh, apt uh, marker for, for disease progression. But as, as we know, like, uh, like, you know, people who are, are, uh, have spent a lot of time in the intensive care unit know that, like, you know, there is a, a subgroup of patients where, like, you are going to be hyperdynamic, where there's going to be significant issues associated with that. And that's what we were really interested in looking at. So, so that was our first, uh, real aim to look at. The other thing that we were very interested in looking at was, 
how does this change in ejection fraction um, really uh, impact outcomes based on the severity of uh, the, the sepsis or septic shock that the patient is presenting with? The reason we were very interested in looking at this was because um, in the ICU, your left ventricle ejection fraction is very dynamic because of what we do to these patients, right? Like, so as we introduce a lot of our vasopressors, we are actively going to change uh, the ejection fraction that these patients were presenting with. So what our interest also was that as we do look at, at these more severe patients, which really are defined as, as need for vasopressors and the total dosage of vasopressors that these patients are exposed to, how does the mortality change for a given ejection fraction? Great. I think that's a really good uh, overview of your study aims. I'll turn back to uh, Dr. Dugar. Um, maybe you could tell us um, your study methods, and in particular, what were the five categories that you used for ejection fraction? And then lastly, um, how did this study design address the limitations that you had noted in the previous studies? Dr. Dugar? Well, uh, so the first approach we wanted to see is how uh, how nuanced we can get with LV ejection fraction. So we wanted to make the group as small as possible while also not losing a significant number of patients, uh, given we know that most of the patients do fall into that 50 to 65 percentage category. So we started with what is used in literature to define hyperdynamic, which was more than 70% in most cases. And then we just divided the group uh, below that in 15% quantiles. Uh, the last group was less than 25% because again, we did not have a significant number of patients, less than 10%. So we thought that less than 25% should give us information of how impaired cardiac function or severely impaired cardiac function uh, will impact the outcomes in this group of patients. And the study limitation that we noted in the prior studies where um, we have already talked about the dichotomization of LV based on an arbitrary value. Another thing we noticed was the timing of echocardiogram. Studies have looked at the time, uh, the time the echocardiogram was performed to assess LV systolic function, ranging from 24 hours to seven days. We have learned from prior studies uh, that most of the cardiac dysfunction happens in the first two to three days and then kind of recovers by seven to 10 days. Hence, we thought that why don't we just limit the, the study sample to that active phase of sepsis so not to uh, uh, lose a lot of patients that may develop uh, cardiac dysfunction by day two and three, but also not include patients who had an echocardiogram done at day seven, which may introduce immortal time bias to our study. Yeah, great. Uh, so um, yours was a retrospective cohort study, and you looked at patients from January 1st, uh, 2011 to December 31st, 2020. So that's really impressive, a 10-year overview, and then you'll use the sepsis-3 guidelines. Um, Dr. Dugar, uh, maybe go ahead and give us your key findings, um, and then we'll uh, go into how the two of you interpreted these findings. Dr. Dugar? Yes. So what we noticed was uh, when we... Uh, performed a multivariable logistic regression model uh, for each of those five groups of LV systolic dysfunction and in-hospital mortality, we found 
that there was a trend towards increased mortality as we moved away from 40 to 70% EF growth. As we went above 70%, we started seeing an increased mortality. In addition, when we started going below 40%, we started seeing an in increased mortality. Then the next step we did was we used a nonlinear relationship where we used LVF as a continuous variable uh, and then in hospital mortality as the outcome. And we could draw a beautiful U-shaped curve uh, that showed not only that extreme of EF was associated with poor outcome, but there was a amplitude associated with it. The more you moved away from the center, which was 50%, there was an increase, uh, there was a trend towards increased mortality culminating at the extremes of LVEF. In addition, we also, as Dr. Dougal already pointed out, we also wanted to look at how does LVEF affect outcomes in different severity of sepsis and septic shock. And something we noticed was that the U-shift always persisted through each of those three groups of sepsis and septic shock. There was one limb that was predominant in sepsis, which was reduced LVEF. These are the patients with bad heart who comes to the ICU with sepsis. But as we move towards septic shock, we see that the hyperdynamic limb start playing a major role or, uh, in terms of affecting outcomes in this group of patients. So that's really impressive findings. And uh, the, the fact that there's a U-shaped curve would explain why previous studies um, found no association because they both were had increased mortality at the extremes. Um, Dr. Dougal, how did you interpret these findings? Um, and as a, as a follow-up question, uh, do you think that the cause of increased mortality in the two groups as you get a lower EF versus a much higher EF is the same or are there different mechanisms? Dr. Dougal? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So I, I'll start off with my interpretation um, of the findings. So I agree with what Dr. Dugar has already mentioned. I think like th those were the key factors that we looked at uh, in terms of, of finding the the U-shaped curve. But I think the other interesting thing that we found out was that um, you know it's not just the fact that you know perhaps the dichotomization at a random point by the earlier studies really kind of um, uh, took us back to the null uh, where we kind of like le um, were, were not able to see the impact around the, the extremes on both sides. But also when we did look at, at the, uh, dropping these patients into this different subgroups where we looked at patients who had only sepsis, patients who had uh, need for low-dose vasopressors, which we defined as as uh, the norepinephrine equivalent doses of less than 0.1, uh, uh, more than 0.1 or less than 0.5, uh, and high dose vasopressor use, which we defined as norepinephrine equivalent dose of more than 0.5. We saw that the absolute mortality for these patients changed very much similar to what's being described in patients when we look at patients with sepsis versus patients with septic shock, which really tells us that at every level, you know, the changes in, in your ejection fraction, whether if you are in a hypodynamic state or in a hyperdynamic state, have an impact independent of, of what else we do for these patients in terms of, of interventions that we are providing, which I think is a very important factor for us to think about. 
Um, having said that, I think the other uh, thing that I, I really want us to focus on and, and, and think about as, as we look at this study is that the mechanisms that really dictate uh, the, the patients who are going towards the low ejection fraction um, or patients who are becoming hyperdynamic need to be looked at very, very closely. And I think this is a first step for us to really start understanding this, but further uh, studies to, to really parse those things out will be needed. Why do I say that? Like, you know, we had good data on, on our most of our coexisting cardiac conditions. We could really account for those things. Um, but what we uh, did for this study was really looking at a snapshot during the first three days of a septic event. And, and what that showed was that, you know, if someone is coming with hypodynamic uh, left ventricular function, uh, they have a higher risk of death. If someone's coming with a hyperdynamic function, they have a higher risk of death. Now, does that really account for their underlying disease state? Like, so was this patients who really are all being driven by because they have low ejection fractions at baseline? Or is it because we are seeing some degree of sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy that really caused these changes and caused those, those, uh, the outcomes to get worse? I think those are really important disparate uh, mechanisms, but important mechanisms for us to be thinking about. Similarly, I think when we look at the hyperdynamic phase, I think that really uh, takes us into a lot of questions that perhaps we've not been able to answer successfully, which include like, you know, is there a, a significant impact on load bearing conditions that really cause uh, like, you know, changes to happen in these patients? And what really is the interaction of arterial elastance and afterload in the context of, of high uh, ejection fractions, especially in patients who are uh, in septic shock. So I think those all become extremely important uh, concepts that we need to start thinking about as we try to answer these questions uh, in a better way. Yeah, those are really all important points. Dr. Dugar, maybe you could comment on how um, you interpreted the findings and maybe comment on, I mean, one of the limitations of your study is that you looked at the retrospective, you looked at the ejection fraction. Do you have any data on um, vascular tone, as Dr. Um, uh, Dugal mentioned, any data on vascular tone, uh, any may, uh, way that you could look at a subgroup uh, where they had data on uh, systemic vascular resistance um, or hydration status, um, where these patients um, were they hypovolemic? Were they um, vasodilated? Were they um, did they have cardiogenic shock? Uh, were you able to drill a little bit deeper into this? Yeah, so that those are really good questions, you know, and uh, that's where one of the limitation of this study I will point out is that we did control for the volume of fluid that was received on the day the echo was performed. And most of the patient received 2.5 to 3 liters of fluid by the day by the day echo was performed. So they were adequately resuscitated based on previous literature of uh, of uh, uh, looking at patients with sepsis and septic shock. Again, we don't have the dynamic assessment of if they were fluid responsive at the time of echo, but that is the nature of this retrospective study. Um, so yes, first and foremost, we wanted to just uh, work on trying to figure out 
it does systolic dysfunction even affect outcomes on, on this group of patients. So that was the sole uh, aim or like the, the biggest, like the primary aim of this uh, study was because prior studies have shown that including meta-analysis that LV systolic dysfunction does not affect outcome. Hence, we focused purely on a parameter that is very easily available that every echo that is done in critical ill patient has. Hence, we decided to look at LVEF uh, as the parameter that we considered a marker of LV systolic dysfunction. Now, we do have a data on LVOTBTI. We have data on stroke volume, SVR, and an arterial elastance. So as Dr. Dougal pointed out, those will be the things that we'll be studying in this group of patients of how these values affect our interpretation of LVEF, uh, to be precise. And also, how much of the hypo or, hypo or hyperdynamic function that we are seeing is because of the loading condition and how much of it is intrinsic uh, myocardial dysfunction, both in both extreme of group, because that will tell us how should we approach this patient. If it is all load-bearing condition, then we should just um, try to see how we can improve the loading condition and how we can achieve uh, the coupling better. But if it is intrinsic myocardial activity that is impaired, both in the hyper and the hypodynamic group, then we should also be looking at uh, modulators of those cardiac uh, dysfunction or uh, uh, intrinsic cardiac dysfunction. So those are the questions that uh, we are interested in. And hopefully in the next uh, a few years, we will be able to add a little bit more on the literature of how much loading condition versus intrinsic myocardial activity play a part in the U-shaped limb that we are seeing in, in this group of patients. Yeah, so um, uh, so some may push back, um, and, and I'll pull Dr. Dougal in for this uh, question. Some may push back and say um, two liters of fluid or 2.5 liters of fluid may be adequate in some patients. In other patients, it may be too little if they have uh, severe peritonitis and they third spading. And in some patients, it may be too much if they've got uh, congestive heart failure or renal disease. Um, so how would you respond to that, uh, Dr. Dougal? Um, you'll use the, the value of two to three liters as, say, an adequate resuscitation, but in some, some may argue that it may be inadequate, correct, or um, over-resuscitated. Uh, um, over and then the follow-up question to that is, what studies do you have planned prospectively um, to answer these questions? Dr. Dougal? Great questions again. So I think, uh, like... I will not push back to anyone who says that, you know, like, you know, that we cannot have a prescriptive uh, volume of, of fluid resuscitation for every patient. I think what we are really trying to show with the study is exactly that. What we are showing is that there is a significant heterogeneity when we look at, at how these patients do respond to the interventions that we give them based on just one factor, which is their ejection fraction. And, and like, you know, just looking at that is not good enough. Uh, like when we are going to be making decisions around vasopressors, um, uh, or, or, uh, like what kind of volume of fluid we're going to be giving them. Now, when Dr. Dugar said that, you know, most of our patients got about two and a half meters or so, I think there is like, you know, that's our, our, uh, mean, uh, for, for the fluid that was given. There is a, a, a good variety in terms of how the, the fluid resuscitation was done for these patients. 
Um, I think our follow-up studies are very much focused on us getting adequate uh, uh, assessments in both in terms of overall fluid exposure to these patients and also like for us to really see if we can look at, at these in more dynamic forms where we can see like if like, these patients had some dynamic assessment in terms of, of fluid uh, resuscitation or not. What I would say is that like, you know, uh, given that like, you know, we did a pretty robust uh, multivariable regression model where we did look at the total intravenous fluid uh, administration for these patients, there was like a, a correlation in terms of, of death associated with that. So I think that really does become an important factor for us to study. Now, having said that, I think, uh, you know, these are all really good questions that we are trying to look at. So, um, like, you know, to follow up with your question, what are we uh, looking at in terms of our future studies? So, like, you know, the the first point we are very interested in looking at is is like you know what about the other echo variables like is ejection fraction the only uh, variable that we should be looking at the easy answer to that is no right in terms of of critically ill patient populations I think uh, ejection fraction has some prognostic value but has perhaps limited uh, value when we look at at things in a dynamic manner. So like the future studies that we are uh, kind of finishing up on right now are looking at other uh, conditions, uh, other variables such as uh, LVOTVTI, such as arterial elastins, such as um, uh, like uh, mitral systolic uh, excursion. Um, all those things would perhaps give us added information or perhaps additive information to ejection fractions as we think about these patients. But I think the, the main uh, message that we want to send out is exactly what you just said. Uh, we cannot look at isolated numbers and, and feel that that gives us the complete information. I think the care for these patient populations needs to be uh, based on multimodal assessments and and our decisions, both in terms of volume and vasopressors, should be decided um, in a dynamic fashion rather than like you know having a one size fit all for all our patients. Dr. Dugar, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, Dr. Dugar, uh, how do you respond to that? I think that was a very well uh, summarized description of what the the aim and the future of what we are uh, currently what we are doing in terms of improving our understanding of complex hemodynamics uh, using echocardiography and other modalities to understand, first of all, how do we identify those phenotypes with different cardiac dysfunction, but also uh, trying to understand that what are the interventions with the ultimate goal to know what are the interventions we should be doing to improve their outcomes. What we wanted to make sure with this paper was Hey, we should be looking at cardiac dysfunction in a new light. And then also determining the factor that drives our cardiac dysfunction with an ultimate goal that we can do something to either prevent it or treat it. Yeah, I think both of you have really done a fantastic job, you and your team, in um, 
recognizing that uh, the literature didn't match up with uh, your clinical assessment of the page, uh, of the patients, you didn't uh, just sit back and say, oh, well, maybe it doesn't make sense. You went and investigated it and found this really interesting U-shaped relationship between ejection fraction and mortality outcomes. Obviously, this is a retrospective study and it needs to be validated in prospective work. And I think uh, your work has given us a really uh, great uh, starting point uh, for future research and applaud both of you and your team for doing that. Um, I do want to give each of you um, the opportunity to leave us uh, with any final uh, uh, comments. I'll start with Dr. Dougal, and then I'll let Dr. Dugar have the final word. Thank you, Dominic. So I think, um, like, you know, what you said is, is, is really correct. I think the, the reason we did this study was really to, for us to have a hypothesis generation of what is the right way to look at ejection fraction in the critically ill population. And I think what this study does is it brings about a lot more questions that need to be answered rather than giving us a conclusive um, one-size-fits-all uh, kind of um, answer for, for, for this problem. So I think the key factor for us is that this needs to be studied uh, in a much uh, elaborated way uh, and like you said, you know, what we should be aiming for and striving for is, is multi-center perspective studies where we do study these patients in, in an ongoing longitudinal manner to really understand the complexity of the heart um, and its interactions. Now, the other thing that I think ha that has been often overlooked has been the impact of interventions that we do for these patients. So we have looked at one intervention, which is the use of vasopressors. But I think all the other interventions, including need for mechanical ventilation, uh, can have significant cardiopulmonary interactions that, that impact the, the overall function of the heart. So I think um, what our hope is that, that, that this uh, study really becomes, um, you know, just uh, almost like a beacon in terms of why we need to think about about heart function and cardiopulmonary interactions in a different way in the ICU. Thank you. Yeah, definitely agree. And uh, I think uh, the fact that you had over 3,000 patients in your study allows us allowed you to really answer this question. And we need to be careful of uh, these very small studies that find no associations. Dr. Dugar, do you get the final word? Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pepper. I think you and Dr. Dougal summarized this very well. Is uh, to to uh, to me, I personally think that you know um, this this study does usher us in a new phase of understanding of cardiac dysfunction in sepsis. It 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 gets us away from a value that defines what is normal and abnormal, but rather it assuming LVEF. If it's a marker of LV systolic function as a continuous variable, where it is not that less than 40% is bad. What we also showed was less than 20% is worse than less than 40%. Um, and also adding that when you do see those extreme LV systolic dysfunction, you should think how best to uh you should do more comprehensive evaluation to understand what is driving those extremes of LV systolic dysfunction and 
trying to see can we address some of those factors to get the cardiac function if possible back to where they have the the best outcome possible and completely agree this is as uh, dr dougal pointed out i think this study is more of a beacon it 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 lets uh, it it causes us to ask more question than we are able to provide answers to right now what we have realized is that the lv systolic dysfunction is bad what in those lv systolic dysfunction is actually worse how does other factors that uh, that are playing role in terms of mechanical ventilation fluid vasopressor impact our interpretation of lv systolic dysfunction has to be taken into consideration when we are thinking about uh, about how to uh, address those questions in a more comprehensive and multimodal way so with that i will say like uh, you know hopefully uh, we and other uh, other group from uh, around the world will be able to add more uh, answers on what is driving each of those uh, phenotypes that we are seeing how does the other interventions that we do in icu influence our assessment of cardiac dysfunction what are the things that are modifiable and non modifiable and if those are modifiable how do we best uh, address them in terms of intervention be it fluid choices of vasopressors heart lung interaction immunomodulators to see that can we start improving outcomes of those group of patients who are at the extreme of lv dysfunction well that sounds like the start of a beautiful journey so <laughs> wish both of you and uh, all the researchers out there um, all the best in uh, solving this question um, a very big thank you uh, to Drs. Dugar and Dugal for a great conversation. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is a chess podcast.